BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I'm Andre Viscontis. Welcome to another episode of Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Here at Inquiring Minds, we're notoriously bad at celebrating milestones. So I want to change that this episode. This is our 325th episode. And over the course of the years in which we've been producing episodes every week, we now have more than 13.4 million downloads across our catalogs. So I want to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, especially those of you who stuck by us through all of these years and have listened to 325 episodes. Thank you. A few months ago, a book came across my desk called As the World Burns. And at the time, it really didn't feel quite as urgent or relevant as it does today. So when wildfires started scorching the West Coast of the U.S., I picked it up again and decided it was time to give it a second look. It turns out that it's by an Arthur that we've had on the show before, Lee Vandervoo, who talked with us last time about fish markets. This time, she profiles the new generation of activists and talks about the landmark legal fight against climate change. Most of us have heard of Greta Thunberg, but have you heard about the teenagers in the U.S. who are making the case that the government's inaction on climate change is violating their civil rights? As I recorded this interview, wafts of smoke were billowing past my window. Talking about climate change and what we need to do in order to make the government accountable and take action never felt more important. Lee Vandervu, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So I'm sitting in my house reading your book uh, during some of the biggest wildfires in California's history. There's smoke outside. Your book is called As the World Burns. It feels incredibly appropriate at the moment. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. So, and there's other reasons. Uh, you live in Oregon, is that right? I do. And there's lots of stuff happening in Portland right now, which is very frightening. So I hope you're okay. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's rough times here for sure. And your book is about the young generation of activists. And so it feels very much in the zeitgeist. And I wondered if we could just back up a bit, though, because you've been working on this book for several years. And what did it feel like when you first heard about the plight of these young activists? And how do you compare that with where we are today? 
You know, it seemed like kind of a lark when I first heard about it. And I think a lot of people in the media felt this way. You know, this was a, a this came to me as a story about 21 young people who were suing the federal government over climate change. And that just seemed kind of kooky um, at the time. This was, I guess, about 2017 that I started paying attention to it. And I think as it as it wore on and became a more serious case and got a trial date and it persisted in, in going uh, almost fully to trial, it, it became a much more serious thing. And less people think this is, you know, what started out as an anti-Trump kind of protest trial. Uh, they were suing the Obama administration at first, right? Right. Yeah, this is a suit that was filed in 2015, and it was filed against the Obama administration initially. So tell us a little bit about those first initial suits. What was the impetus for these young people to do what they did? They wanted action on climate change, and they felt that they weren't really getting it through the traditional channels. Um, you know, the feeling is that legislatively, climate remediation is is stuck, and they wanted to try to force their, their hand in the courts. So what was their first step? They filed their litigation in 2015 um, against the U.S. government, and they charged not so much that the government is not active on, on um, turning back the clock and climate change, but actually that the government is complicit through its actions in promoting a fossil fuel economy or, and an energy system that essentially hastens global warming. And I know there's a lot of criticism about how the Obama administration did not live up to the expectations of people who thought they were really going to be active at fighting climate change. And so I wanted to start with sort of, you know, whether whether you feel like that this action started with the impetus to sort of call out the administration on f- promises that weren't delivered. I'm not sure that that's true. I think that there was a feeling that more needed to be done. And, and, and certainly, yeah, I, I, do, I do think that there was frustration with the Obama administration in the sense that it was promoting still a, a kind of all of the above strategy as far as fighting climate change, if you will. I mean, there were significant rollbacks to energy emissions and coal burning and that kind of thing. But at the same time, the administration was pursuing uh, a fossil fuel energy plan that included, you know, natural natural gas as a transition fuel and made the U.S. Um, the top producer in the world, I believe, of natural gas during that time. And so, you know, it was a little bit like you can't have it all, <laughs> you know, like either there, there's a strong feeling I think, on the part of the plaintiffs that, um, you know, addressing climate change really means going at it. Um, to the to the full extent that's required scientifically to reduce global warming and um, get us back to some some sustainable carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. Tell me a, a little bit about these young people. Um, maybe start from where you first met them, or whatever you feel is is more the the right start. The, you know, the first person who sort of like you know for whom the the case is named Juliana. Um, you know, I'd like to just get to get our listeners to learn a little bit more about who these people are. Sure. Um, you know, I, like I said, was learning about them as a member of the media. I was getting a lot of, you know, press releases about developments in their case. And I was consuming a lot of media myself that were just like, you know, personality profiles or snippets about here are these young people who are 
who were fighting for this cause. And, and I think I had just kind of like a head scratchy reaction to it. Like, is this for real? Are, are these kids for real? Are they being stage managed by like hand wringing parents? Like what's going on here? You know, I just kind of got more and more curious about them as this went on wanting to understand, like, is this really their fight or is this some adult fight that they've been put in front of? Like, who are they? And so, um, 2018, uh, I started trying to meet them and I, I reached out to, to the legal team and, and some of the plaintiffs and just said, you know, I'd like to get to know who you are and report on climate change in your regions, where you come from and kind of see what this is about. And they were amenable to it, which is great. And so I just started having these meetings. Um, I can't remember who I met first. Uh, about half of the plaintiffs are from Oregon. So, um, uh, I, I know I met some of the Oregonians early on, but I also um, traveled to Louisiana and Florida to meet with plaintiffs there and Colorado um, and just kind of got to know them a little bit as individuals in the lead up to their trial, which was supposed to be October 2018. Yeah. So did it seem to you like they were um, that like, how did they find each other and were they organized in that way? You know, it seems like were they friends beforehand? H- how did they come together as plaintiffs in this one trial? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I w- will say that I did find them to be all, um, you know, in invested in the cause of, of, of climate change, like from their own corners of their worlds. Like it wasn't, so much that anybody was recruited because they lived in a certain spot or something like that. I didn't find them to be managed by their parents or or any other adults. They were climate activists, all of them in their own right, and very active in like different youth groups. So Earth Guardians, for example, or I Matter, which were um, climate advocacy groups for young people. Uh, many of them had participated in those kinds of things, or they were working in their own, you know, backyard on, on climate efforts. And um, our Children's Trust, which is a nonprofit legal firm that helps kids uh, fight for climate change, is based in Oregon, had one federal lawsuit like this before the Juliana case. And that lasted a couple of years in the courts and then sort of fizzled because it had targeted inaction on climate change in the U.S. government. And they wanted to try again with a case that targeted the government's action toward promoting a fossil fuel energy system. So I think by the time they got to a place where they were ready to start a federal case, they had gotten enough interest from young people who had reached out to them who wanted to be plaintiffs to have like a few key folks in the mix who came to be plaintiffs in this case. So Kelsey Juliana was uh, the lead plaintiff and was one of those with Scott Martinez. And they had um, their own extensive networks through which they recruited uh, many of the other plaintiffs. And then there were a handful who um, approached the legal team on their own. So what is it? I mean, you know, the, the youth component of it is, is a big part of the argument. So actually, why don't we just start there? What is their argument for why they should be the plaintiffs in a case against the government on climate change? Yeah, their, their argument is that um, their civil rights are being violated, that they as Americans have a right to life, to life and liberty and property, and that that isn't being preserved by a government that's promoting an energy system 
that makes it uh, unsustainable for them to have healthy environmental conditions by the time they're older. I guess my next question is sort of like, what is then the responsibility for any of these plaintiffs? Like, what are they being asked to do? Or I guess, what were they asked to do um, as they were preparing for their trial? They participated in depositions. And um, I think that experts who were testifying on their behalf in the case did a lot of uh, research in the areas in which they live. Like, for example, Levi Draheim, who's the youngest plaintiff, who lives on a barrier island off the east coast of Florida, he participated in in depositions about how climate change affects his his life, um, which is... uh, you know, his home is is being submerged. It is one of the places in the United States that will be underwater maybe by 2030 at the rate that we're going. And um, I think as well, there was a, a lot of research done to better understand what exactly the climate impacts to his island are. So sort of, I think, a twofold effort, just taking on that personal experience of the plaintiff, but then also really researching what is happening to the ecology of where they live. And did the plaintiffs get backlash from, I mean, was this something that was created challenges for them beyond just the extra work that it entailed? I think that it has in some ways. Um, Yeah, I've heard plaintiffs describe enduring a little more bullying and pushback than they would have expected. Um, And I think some of that may be to do with how the political environment around their case changed. After they filed it, um, you know, it was originally a lawsuit against the Obama administration, but when it became a lawsuit then against the Trump administration, I think that there was a little more uh, forceful pushback around um, just ideologies underpinning climate change and, and, and arguments about how to address it, that they ended up in a, in a position where um, probably they took a little more heat than they might have planned on. I mean, at the same time, all of them also um, have had a lot of opportunity to be very visible as spokespeople on this issue that they all care very deeply about. And I think most of them would say that they have really appreciated the opportunity just to be able to speak up for themselves and be heard. And so, you know, they've they've taken a lot of good things away from it as well. I mean, you mentioned something that, that's really interesting to me, which is that it seems like their case only would have gotten stronger with the change in administration. And that, you know, given given some of the actions that the Trump administration has has made, uh, basically to undo any kind of effort to curb climate change, at least that's my reading of, of, uh, of their policies. Is that part of it? Like, can you tell us a little bit about how the Trump administration's actions changed their argument or, you know, changed the way that they approached the the trial? I think it's really interesting, just like from a social perspective, to observe actually what's really happened in this case. You know, pushing past all the ideology, the fact is that by the time the case got to be the Trump administration's case, the U.S. government had already ceded, you know, climate change as fact in the courtroom and also conceded that the United States is responsible for 25 percent of the historic carbon accumulation worldwide. So, you know, that's a, a heck of a concession for this government to be making and to have the Trump administration come in and take over the case and not dispute that, I think, was something that really escaped public view and maybe should not have. 
I mean, this was the administration just broadly conceding, yes, climate change is real. It is man-made and we are responsible for a tremendous portion of it. When in, you know, other venues, you'd see the administration behaving and, and speaking very differently. So um, that was was striking. Um, and I think that the Trump administration's approach to the courts being very different than the Obama administration's also really kind of changed the game for this case. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more detail on sort of like, you know, what happened? How do these concessions happen? Because, you know, ultimately as far as I could tell, like there wasn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't, there wasn't, it didn't go to as far as the activists were hoping. Yeah, it certainly hasn't gone as far as the plaintiffs had hoped yet. And um, that, that may um, be how it ends, you know, but this was always an extraordinarily uphill battle, I think in some ways. I mean, it's a constitutional case, but it, it really relies on the court stepping in and, and ordering the government to um, adopt a climate remediation strategy of some kind, not spelling out like how that looks or how it should happen, right? But saying, look, government, this is your job and you need to come up with something, anything. And the challenge of that, of course, is that like legal experts have said for a long time in this case, like that really will require, like given the breadth of the effort, supervision of the government by the courts for many, many years. And that might be untenable, like in the structure that we live in, right? Like courts are really going to take on supervising the government for 20 years. That's unlikely. And that's where the case is now stuck. That's why it was dismissed from the Ninth Circuit and now is um, pending appeal, possibly for a full review of the Ninth Circuit or onto the Supreme Court. So the hurdle was always really high. What's different about the administrations is that in early days, I don't think that the fossil fuel industry really trusted that the the Obama administration would defend well in this case. And so the primary uh, opponents in the case were the American fuel and petrochemical manufacturers and the American Petroleum Institute. And they petitioned for standing in the case and got it, which means that they became defendants in the case alongside the federal government. And for the years that the Obama administration was the target of the lawsuit, these associations basically just papered the courts with opposition. And these are trade groups that represent some of, you know, I mean, the gorillas of the fossil fuel industry, right? Like Chevron and Citgo and ExxonMobil. And they fought this case really, really hard. When the Trump administration took over, um, that coincided with kind of a stand down on the part of the fossil fuel industry in the case. Like they stopped participating. Um, some folks say that that was political, but it was also a timing issue. You know, we're getting in the part of the case where discovery was going to happen and these giant fossil fuel companies were going to be subject to have to turn over um, research and information that perhaps they didn't really want in the courtroom after all. So the Trump administration continued defending the case from there and has as its lead in the environmental section of the Department of Justice, a former BP uh, attorney who now um, defends the government in this case. And what's very unique about the Trump administration's approach is that it has used like these emergency writs, basically emergency petitions that are very rarely used in other cases to halt this case in its tracks just over and over again. And to give you an example of 
how rare that really is. In the last 16 years before Trump became president, the writ of mandamus, this emergency writ, was used eight times by Obama and Bush, respectively, over 16 years. In the Trump administration, between his inauguration in January of 2017 and the time of this trial, which was supposed to be October, late October of 2018, the writ of mandamus had been used 20 times, um, which is more than twice as, as often as, had, as it had been used in 16 preceding years. Five of those emergency petitions targeted this case. What is the outcome of, of that? Like, why would the government choose those emergency writs as opposed to just other, other forms of, of defending their case? Yeah, so the writ of mandamus, essentially, what it is, is it's like a nuclear option in the courtroom. It's something that you'd use in a really extreme situation to appeal to a, a higher court and say, this lower court is, um, is harassing us, is, pressure, is pressuring us, we're here for, for invalid reasons, and to try to get a higher court to basically get the case out of, of, this, of where it's at. So the Trump administration filed these emergency petitions with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and with the U.S. Supreme Court at the time that the case was being heard in the U.S. District Court. So essentially it was litigating the case in three courts at the same time. And, you know, the objective was to get the case dismissed by a higher court. And, you know, it it has to be noted that, um, you know, half of the uses of this writ of mandamus, so 10 of them, were in October of 2018, they all had to do with highly political cases. So the right of young dreamers to remain in America, the citizenship question on the U.S. Census, the Muslim air travel ban and the transgender military ban, plus Juliana were all cases where the writ of mandamus was used. And uh, most of them subsequent to when Brett Kavanaugh was sworn in as justice in the Supreme Court. So you have to look at that and come to the conclusion that the administration was really hoping that by essentially politicizing the courts, you know, it could get out of jail for free, I guess, and some of these legal issues. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, someone saying, I'm just going to go to the boss's boss and ask the boss's boss to tell my boss to stop harassing me, right? That's that's exactly what it is. And I'm the one who put my boss's boss in business, like, <laughs> right, in that position. Yeah, yeah. By the way, don't forget who got you here. Like, and, and that is, you know... It, even though the courts didn't especially fall for it, there was certainly in the decisions by the the Ninth Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court, even though they didn't grant these writs and say, yes, we're going to toss this case, they certainly sent direction back to the lower courts that kind of pressured them in a direction, right? And that direction forced the U.S. District Court of Oregon essentially to open the case up to the Ninth Circuit for review, which is what happened and how it ended up being dismissed before it actually went to trial. It's very unusual. And even though it isn't um, necessarily the Supreme Court stepping in and squashing action in the lower courts, it is subtle pressure from the higher courts on the lower courts through this political process. And it's very new. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Tell me a little bit about the dismissal that happened. I mean, that sort of we've sort of uh, spoiled the ending (laughs) for our listeners in a, you know, in a kind of. Yeah. But tell me a little bit about that day and and what that meant for these young activists and sort of where they're what they're doing now. Well, essentially, the decision was um, what was what some legal experts had suspected all along that the courts were not going to be comfortable ultimately issuing an order that was going to require them to supervise the government's response for years and years. And the court couldn't find its way through that. I mean, the reason that these uh, young activists decided to go this route into the beginning was so that they could compel the government to take action on climate change, right? And so instead of like trying to sue, a, uh, you know, a major company or, you know, someone who's admitting fossil fuels, what they're, what they're trying to do is go straight to the government and say, you have to act on climate change and, and to get the courts to back them up. Yeah. Okay. So now that we've got that, so then the idea here was like, well, how are you going to get the courts to ensure that the government sticks to the ruling? <laughs> um, you'd have to monitor them for 20 years, which is where it seems to have broken down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, I, and you know, courts have, have told the government what to do before. I mean, if we look at cases of prison crowding or desegregation, which were argued in this case, it's not, you know, all that, all that unusual. But the difference is that you can resolve a problem like prison overcrowding or, or desegregation issues in a shorter time period. And it was really this like sort of um, we're supervising you long into the future that made the courts, uh, the justices super uncomfortable in this case and why they ruled as they did. Now, that was a three person panel of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And so what the plaintiffs have asked is that the full Ninth Circuit now hear um, the case and, and all judges weigh in. And the court has not made a decision yet on whether they're going to entertain that process. If they do, uh, there'll be another round. And if not, then the option is Supreme Court or bust. I mean, it does seem to be a pretty high hurdle. Uh, and yet I, I completely understand why these activists and, and you know, would, would want to take this route as you know, potentially one that could actually engender some kind of change, because then even if the administration changes, there's still a mandate to, you know, continue the work to fight climate change. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, alternately, their route is the ballot box or uh, or through legislation. We're talking about people who in the days, the early days of this case, were not old enough to vote. So, you know, this is a class of American citizens that just does not have another avenue. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to note is that they cannot just go to the ballot box and vote. 
Um, and so that's the argument why, about why their rights in particular were being, uh, you know, trounced. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, you know, you asked about the decision's effect on the plaintiffs. And for a while, there was just a lot of quiet. I think there's been a lot of downtime in this whole thing. I mean, it has been five years now. I think it, it's been longer than, than many of them expected to begin with. And I think they just live their lives, you know, as this goes on and they hope for the best with it, but I don't think that their heads are stuck in it. And if you think about where they are, um, Oregon, Colorado, Louisiana, Florida, these are all states that have been impacted significantly by climate change related uh, weather events, at least, if not, you know, other kinds of events. Um, so what, you know, how, how do you think that that, does that affect their case at all? Or do you think that, um, or their, their fervent, fervency, fervor, fervor, sorry, <laughs> making up words now, fervor, uh, you know, to fight this case? Like what, how, how, how important is it that they are from areas of the U.S. in particular that are being really affected by climate change? I think it's really super important. I mean, just looking at some of the impacts that some of them have personally weathered is just it's kind of staggering, honestly. Um, you know, even in Oregon, you know this uh, from being in California right now. The wildfires, the wildfire season is getting more intense, and it's increased seventy-eight days since the '90s. So it's now a seven-month season instead of a five-month season. That has huge effects on the plaintiffs here. Um, Colorado is not much different. You know, bark beetles there have infected 81% of ponderosa and lodgepole pine forests already, and that's a, a result of climate change and the fact that temperatures aren't cold enough to kill them in those forests in the winter anymore. You know, the Gulf Coast is experiencing non-hurricane-related extreme precipitation, and that really directly affected one plaintiff who, in 2016, uh, her home was flooded when like seven trillion gallons of water dumped on Louisiana in one storm. That's three times the amount of rainfall we saw in in Katrina. So, you know, seeing these kinds of, of accelerating issues, I don't think that harms their case at all to be able to show like, look, this is getting worse. But at the same time, you know, it, I don't think it can be the only front that they fight on um, is just to wait for the courts to react. Uh, they're definitely, in many cases, experiencing some very, very extreme um, conditions. One, one plaintiff, for example, from the Navajo Nation who is dealing with extraordinary drought, you know, these problems don't wait. So I want to sort of just ask you a little bit about what your what your sense is uh, about the future for these activists and 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 whether this is um, different from, say, you know, in the kids who grew up in the 80s were also there was, you know, there's there's a big portion of them that were environmentalists. And, you know, the, I think at the time, one of the things, you know, a couple of the things that were really important were the the hole in the ozone layer and then also species and endangerment. And um, and then, you know, people grow up and it seems like they kind of grow out of some of their activist tendencies as other types of responsibilities uh, come to the fore. Do you think that there's something different about this generation, you know, with uh, Greta Thunberg and, you know, other other activists gaining prominence in a way that I don't remember ever seeing before um, and, and, you know, still being very young? I do. Yeah, I really do. I, I think that, that this generation of young people is, um, you know, they are growing up in extraordinary times, you know, they're living their entire lives um, with the threat of, of 
environmental collapse. They learn about it from an early age. They understand what it means. They accept the science. It's not remote to them. It, it, it does spell catastrophe in their lifetimes. It's very personal for them. And I think um, that was something that I didn't understand as an older person coming in and reporting the story and was really hit over the head with in the time that I spent with, with these young people. And I hope that that's something folks can take away from the book is just the extraordinary experience they really are having watching this move toward them. And sort of you, you, you talk about in, in the book something that I found, you, you en- ended with it, that I found actually really hopeful, which is that they don't seem to be acting out of a state of fear, which can have really negative consequences, but a desire for safety. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that distinction and what it means. Yeah, it's it's inspiring. I mean, and I find them inspiring. I, I think that, um, you know, they don't have... Uh, as, as, as one of the plaintiffs, Chutescott Martinez, put it to me at one point, like they don't have the luxury to just mope about it. You know, they have to find solutions and they're very motivated toward that. So there's a lot of positive energy and positive thought around what can we do and how will we solve this problem as opposed to just being entrenched in a place of I don't believe it exists and I'm not going to solve it or it's, it's so hard to solve I'm not even going to try it. They, they don't have that uh, inertia, <laughs> I think, that older generations have. And, I, you know, I think that in some ways, a silver lining of this whole pandemic, too, is that everyone is starting to rethink the things that they took for granted, uh, the, even, even when it comes to the power that they didn't have. You know, like I see a lot of people who are suddenly starting enterprises that, you know, they wouldn't have been able to beforehand because either, you know, they didn't see how to make it happen or people weren't as open to new ideas. And so I keep saying that there's this kind of wonderful edge effect that is happening, which means that there is a big change. And in moments of big change, there are moments of great opportunity. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I think that that like COVID in some ways, it, it does provide a window on what we're really looking at with climate change. I think like older folks in our in our society have had the luxury of living through very, very stable times, especially as Americans. And coronavirus kind of gives us the perspective that, you know, that can change in an instant. And the notion that, you know, we will be able to just flip to a vaccine and things will go back to normal is, is very rosy. And I hope that it's true. But you know, considering all the ecological devastation associated with these types of zoonotic diseases and how they come into into humanity. I mean, you know, we're looking at more of this kind of thing in our in our future. And if we can embrace that and start to push against it, um, not just against, you know, a zoonotic disease, but also the attending environmental devastation that gets us there, we could make some headway, but we have to accept that, you know, we're living in a new reality. So I want to let our listeners know if they're interested in learning more about these young activists, uh, Lee Vandervu's book really describes them in detail and with great interest. Her book is called As the World Burns, The New Generation of Activists and the Landmark Legal Fight Against Climate Change. Lee, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. 
If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. And of course, all of you are longtime listeners. Here's to episode 325. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. He's produced every single episode. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.